This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clotty, and here's what's coming up. The United States very much appreciates President Lorenzo's continued efforts to de-escalate tensions between Rwanda and the DRC. Uh, we believe that the Rwanda process, in tandem with the Nairobi process, is the best hope for enduring peace. That was U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on the rules by Angola and Kenya in trying to ease tensions between Rwanda and the DRC. Also, Nelson Chamisa, leader of Zimbabwe's biggest opposition party, says he has left it. And a Kenyan court has charged the leader of a starvation cult with child torture and cruelty. Others and more coming up on African News Tonight. Today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken praised the relationship between America and Angola, saying it was reaching new heights. During his visit to Luanda, the top U.S. diplomat referenced the meeting last year between Angola's President Joao Manuel Conchalzes Lorenzo and U.S. President Joe Biden. Uh, at the White House in November, President Biden reaffirmed to President Lorenzo that this is a historic moment for the partnership between the United States and Angola. Um, our relationship is stronger, it's more consequential, it's farther reaching than in any point in our 30-year friendship. At a news conference today, Blinken also said he had discussed with Lorenzo the conflict between Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The United States very much appreciates President Lorenzo's continued efforts to de-escalate tensions between Rwanda and the DRC. Uh, we believe that the Rwanda process, in tandem with the Nairobi process, is the best hope for enduring peace. Uh, Angola is trusted by all sides. President Lorenzo's leadership is vital for a breakthrough. Today we had a chance to discuss that uh, with the president, with the foreign minister, including meaningful steps that can be taken uh, toward peace. Angola is the last stop in Blinken's four-nation Africa trip that started Monday in Cape Verde, then went on to Ivory Coast and Nigeria. On much of the trip, he stressed economic ties between African nations and the United States and focused attention on African technology innovators. The search continues in Mali amid fears of more victims after an unregulated gold mine collapsed last week, killing more than 70 people, an official said yesterday. There were about 100 people in the mine at the time, according to the president of the Mali Chamber of Mines. The cause of last Friday's collapse in Kangamba district in the southwestern Kolokoro region is under investigation. A senior official at the government's National Geology and Mining Directory confirmed the details to the Associated Press and called it an accident. Such tragedies are common in Mali, Africa's number three gold producer. A Kenyan court has charged the leader of a starvation cult with child torture and cruelty over the deaths of more than 400 of his followers. Paul Nthenge Mackenzie and 38 other suspects pleaded not guilty to charges including beating and deliberately starving children. This, according to court documents from the Mombasa court scene by the French news agency AFP. Mackenzie, who has already been charged with terrorism and manslaughter, is alleged to have incited his followers to starve to death in order to meet Jesus. A court in the coastal city of Malindi is scheduled to 
rule on February 6 if the self-proclaimed pastor is mentally fit to face additional charges of murder. He was arrested last April after bodies were discovered in the Shakola forest near the Indian Ocean. Autopsies reveal that the majority of the two 429 victims had died of hunger, but others, including children, appeared to have been strangled, beaten or suffocated. The leader of Zimbabwe's largest opposition group, the Citizens Coalition for Change, announced today he is leaving the party. Nelson Chamisa, who lost to President Emerson Mnamgagwa in last year's presidential election, said the ruling ZANU-PF party has hijacked the CCC. Over the past several months, several CCC lawmakers were ousted from parliament after it was alleged they were not lawful members of the coalition. They were barred from running in by-elections, which gave ZANU-PF an opportunity to expand its majority in parliament. To help explain the latest development, my colleague Blessing Zulu with the VOA Zimbabwe service joins us live. Hello, Blessing. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thank you. So, to begin with, first, tell us more about who Nelson Chamisa is. Uh, Nelson Chamisa is uh, the leader of, or was the leader of uh, Zimbabwe's uh, main opposition uh, party, the Citizens Coalition for Change, which he formed uh, two years ago. Uh, this is after he lost control of the uh, movement for democratic change, uh, the opposition uh, party that was uh, formed by the alleged uh, Morgan Changirai, who was also uh, the prime minister in a unity government with the late President Robert Gabriel Mugabe. Now, let me ask you this. Why is he leaving the CCC that he formed two years ago, like you said? I've just talked to uh, Mr. Chamisa a few minutes ago in an exclusive uh, interview. Uh, he is uh, saying that um, the ruling ZANU-PF party led by President Emerson Mnangagwa is uh, interfering with the running of his party. And uh, he is saying that uh, there is uh, one Sengezo Shabangu who is calling himself uh, an interim secretary general of the party uh, and recalling members of the Triple uh, C or the Citizens Coalition for Change led by Nelson Chamisa. And he is doing this, uh, being begged, of course, uh, according to Mr. Chamisa, by the ruling party and also uh, the courts that he is saying are compromised. So Mr. Chamisa has lost the several uh, parliamentarians and also councillors and senators. So this is why he is saying he has decided to call it quits. But some people are suggesting that um, the accusation that the ZANU-PF, the ruling party, has hijacked the CCC itself is questionable and may not be legitimate. What did he say yes. about that? Yes, we also uh, talked to the ZANU-PF, Director of Information, uh, Farai Marapira, who is saying that uh, what is happening in the Triple C has nothing to do with the ruling ZANU-PF party, but uh, factionalism within the uh, Citizens Coalition for Change, and is accusing uh, Mr. Chamisa of not having clear structures. And as a result, this is um, uh, giving a chance to some opportunists to just claim uh, positions 
in the party. But blessing before you go, talking about structures, some people suggest that he did not put up adequate structures to address some of these concerns for which reason he's leaving the party. So what makes him think that if he forms another party, such might not follow him? Uh, just taking you back a little, when he actually had those structures that critics are talking about, he again lost the party to uh, Douglas Monzora, that is the uh, MDC. Uh, this is what is leading many analysts uh, to say that uh, uh, the, the, the problem might be with the ruling ZANU-PF party, uh, which still uh, has ambitions of uh, running Zimbabwe as a one-party state. And uh, therefore, uh, you know, most opposition leaders going back to 1983 have been charged with treason, except uh, Mr. Chamisa. But all the main opposition leaders uh, have had uh, similar uh, problems in the past. Thank you very much. That was my colleague Blessing Zulu with the VOA Zimbabwe service. You are, and you are listening to African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. Human Rights Watch today accused the Burkina Faso army of killing at least 60 civilians in drone strikes, which the government said targeted extremist fighters. The French news agency AFP says the deaths occurred in three strikes since August, two at crowded markets and another at a funeral. Human Rights Watch says it interviewed dozens of witnesses between September and November and analyzed photographs, videos, and satellite images. The group says the drone strikes violated laws of war, prohibitions against attacks that do not discriminate between civilians and military targets, and were apparent war crimes. Human Rights Watch urges the government to urgently and impartially investigate these apparent war crimes, hold those responsible to account, and provide adequate support for the victims and their families. Military leader Captain Ibrahim Traore has focused on a strong security response to attacks by groups affiliated to Al-Qaeda in Islamic State. The government has not yet responded to the HARW report. Protesters angered over the Israel-Hamas conflict have taken to the streets in the United States and some have disrupted President Joe Biden's campaign appearances. VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell looks at how the issue is playing out on the campaign trail. Caroline Presuti contributed to this report from Nashua, New Hampshire. Patsy Waidekuswara contributed from Washington. The burning conflict in Gaza has lit a spark under untold numbers of American voters and is putting the heat on President Joe Biden's re-election bid. This was supposed to be a rally for abortion rights. Instead, much of Biden's Tuesday speech was interrupted by protesters, angry over Biden's support of Israel's military campaign, clearly frustrating the president. Make deeply we're going to have this going to go on for a while. That protest was organized by Die-In for Humanity, a 700-member strong protest group that has made nearly 100 appearances at Biden events, the U.S. Capitol, outside administration members' homes, and at this January protest in Washington. Hazami Barmada is the lead organizer for Die-In for Humanity. 
And we're seeing a shift in the tide in the United States with um, complete um, rejection, in essence, of, of Biden. And, and that's uh, what we're saying is that you're not going to get the vote of the Arab American community when you constantly continue to disregard um, the voices of the Arab American community that are saying stop the injustice and the atrocities in Gaza. The White House said Wednesday the president supports peaceful protest. John Kirby, Strategic Communications Coordinator for the National Security Council. He also believes it's really important that Israel have the right and the ability to continue to defend themselves against which is what, what is clearly still a viable threat from Hamas. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're going to stop, again, urging uh, uh, a stronger focus by our Israeli counterparts on uh, minimizing civilian casualties and on getting aid in. Political analysts say Biden is in a difficult position. Norm Ornstein is a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, There's no doubt that the situation in Gaza is a political problem for Biden. If you step back and look objectively, Biden has handled this issue adroitly about as well as any president could. He understood early on that by hugging uh, Bibi Netanyahu close, He could keep some of the worst things from happening in Gaza, but he's now getting very close to pushing Bibi aside. Uh, And that means that uh, the initial move, which alienated a lot of voters, not just Arab American voters, but young progressives, uh, may in fact end up being worse for him because if he pushes or spurns Uh, Bibi Netanyahu aside, then some of his strongest supporters, uh, pro-Israel supporters, may be unhappy as well. Foreign policy analysts say rarely drives elections, but can make a difference when the competition is tight. This undecided New Hampshire voter, who participated Tuesday in a primary vote that Biden and Republican contender Donald Trump won for their respective parties, said his decision comes down to one thing. Isaac Gear is an independent New Hampshire voter who says he is undecided. Um, biggest thing I'm voting for this uh, this election season is foreign policy. Um, it's really important to me that we stay out of any foreign wars and um, keep our military spending down um, and bring our troops back home or keep them home. Trump's plan to resolve the Gaza crisis is unclear, and his previous actions as president included a much-criticized ban of Muslim immigrants. VOA reached out several times to the Trump campaign, but they did not respond. For Muslim activists, it's a stark choice. Hassan Abdel Salam co-founded the Abandoned Biden Movement of Muslim Voters and is based in the swing state of Minnesota. He's a Canadian citizen. Mr. Trump prevented our friends and colleagues and family from entering the country, but Mr. Biden killed them. And that four years under any Republican is incomparable to one day in Gaza. That uh, an argument has emerged within our communities that we have to sacrifice. This leaves American voters with two tools to express their feelings about what is happening here. Their voice. And, come November, their vote. Anita Powell, VOA News, Washington. The British Museum and the Victoria and Albert Museum has agreed to return on long-term loan gold and silver artifacts looted during colonial times from Ghana's Asante Royal Court. 
The agreement comes as international momentum grows for museums to restore African artifacts from former colonial powers Britain, France, Germany and Belgium. The French news agency AFP says the items include a 300-year-old Mpomponso sword used in a swearing in ceremonies, a gold peace pipe, and cast gold soul washes badges. The artifacts were taken after the Third Anglo-Asante War in 1874. They include a total of 32 items, 15 from the British Museum and 17 from the Victoria and Albert Museum, which are both in London. They will be displayed in Kumasi, the seat of the Asantehene Kingdom, at the Menshia Palace Museum for up to six years. In Ivory Coast, the African Nations Cup or AFCON moves to the next stage of the competition. This, after the last games of the first round were played on Wednesday. For all the action in upcoming games and the performance of teams in the competition so far, I reach reporter Mokbil Yabaru. He is on a special assignment in Ivory Coast covering the AFCON tournament. The matches that were played yesterday were the final matches in the group uh, phases. The games ended literally with no goals except for one game. So Namibia, Mali, 0-0 draw. South Africa, Tunisia, 0-0 draw. Tanzania, DRC, 0-0. And Morocco versus Zambia, 1-0 victory for Morocco. Now, um, implications were that if Zambia was able to get a draw or a win, against uh, Morocco, they would be the final third place team to make it. Now, the last team that they were competing with for that spot was Ivory Coast, Les Elephants. So the entire city uh, yesterday was glued to the TV to watch the Morocco game because it was happening in St. Pedro. So I, I was in Abidjan and we were all watching to make sure that Morocco is able to keep that 1-0 lead that Hakim Ziyech uh, put them through, I believe, in like it was like the 30th minute or so. And we continually kept watching the game. And once the game was over and uh, Morocco won, that meant that Ivory Coast finally made it through to the next round. Uh, and it was excitement all over the city, man. All you hear is honking and horns, people dancing in the streets. It was It was a lot, you know. In your view, what are the teams to look out for? Uh, because a lot of people have been talking about interesting development with the so-called non-soccer nations coming out strongly uh, in this AFCON. Mm-hmm. This has been a very unique AFCON in that so many teams that were expected to play extremely well haven't really played extremely well. To be honest with you, if, if I'm going to just keep it completely a thousand, I would say that the only real heavyweight team that uh, was expected and predicted by analysts and folks alike uh, that have played up to their potential and the expectations has been Senegal. Senegal has a 100% win rate, won all three games. So they're the only team that has shown uh, that level of dominance. Then you have teams on the other side, like Equatorial Guinea, who I don't believe many expected to end up uh, playing as well as they did. They've been phenomenal. I would also say Angola has been great. Cape Verde, uh, Morocco played an excellent game one. Uh, they got a win yesterday as well, but the draw against DRC kind of showed that, you know, this team may not be as strong as we may have expected them to be. Um, and then you have a team like uh, Ivory Coast who really didn't have like extremely bad games. It's just that, you know, like against Equatorial Guinea, 
They lost 4-0. So on paper, when you look at the game, it's like, wow, they got blown out. They had majority of the ball possession. They had way more shots, but the shots just weren't on target. I remember it was something along the lines of 22 shots uh, to having only three on target. That can't be your percentage at all in front of the goals. Their coach actually got sacked yesterday um, alongside the Ghanaian coach. Um, I believe also Algeria and Tunisia have uh, followed suit with uh, firing their coaches. Uh, the Gambian uh, coach also stepped down. So there's a whole uh, new coaching staff that's going to be running for Ivory Coast uh, for this next round. So maybe they might be able to implement something different that the old coaching staff was unable to do so for their uh, very, very big matchup uh, coming up on Monday against Senegal. It's going to be a very big and tough task for the Ivorians. Mogbia, before you go, what is your overall impression? of this AFCON tournament in Ivory Coast? From the perspective of just watching the games and the unpredictability and the level of uh, class that, you know, some of these teams have, like I mentioned, right, the Cape Verdes, right, even Mauritania, right, making it through to the next level. Uh, these are teams that naturally, when you, you would have seen them a couple of years ago, might have been an afterthought, you know, uh, in comparison to the big names like the Nigerias, the Cameroons, the Senegals. But now it seems like countries are finding ways to tap into their players in the diaspora or actually working with uh, building and developing infrastructure in their respective countries to make sure that there's this level of want and desire from players even abroad to want to play for their country, right? So however they're doing it, however they're getting these players to come back and, and really be locked in and want to do this for their country, uh, they're doing a phenomenal job. So now you can't really say that there are any small teams or big teams. It just It's just teams now. Uh, so uh, that's the one takeaway that I will say uh, that I've seen. And like I've said numerous times, Ivorians, they're, they're amazing people. They've been great hosts, very hospitable. Uh, so I've had nothing but uh, great things to say about this AFCON. With a growing concern over greenhouse gas emissions that are blamed for climate change, a Kenyan-Dutch company is introducing electric bikes in sub-Saharan Africa for deliveries in urban areas to help reduce emissions. The transport sector plays a crucial role in reducing greenhouse gas emissions and mitigating the effects of global warming. Juma Majanga reports from Nairobi. Patrick Ambasu is making a delivery in Nairobi's Hallingham neighborhood. Ambasu recently switched from a motorcycle to an electric bike. The father of eight says the bike has not only improved his working conditions, but also increased his earnings. He says electric bikes have eased deliveries and transportation, adding that it has significantly cut down costs that riders would otherwise incur in buying fuel for motorcycles. The bike, Ambasu says, has good speed, and it can go anywhere, even places a motorcycle can't access. Motorcycle deliveries, called border borders, are common in Kenya. Last year, a Kenyan-Dutch company, EB Africa, began selling electric bikes and electric cargo bikes in Kenya, Uganda and Rwanda for deliveries and commuting. In Kenya, the bikes cost between $580 and $740. EB says more than 800 delivery riders in Nairobi have switched so far. CEO Sten van der Ham says the aim is to accelerate the adoption of clean transport in sub-Saharan Africa to raise incomes and reduce environmental damage through emissions.
What we see is that the earning potential of the people who do last mile deliveries, especially on bodas, is quite low. It's quite expensive to operate a boda when you think about fuel, maintenance. An electric bicycle is two to three times more affordable. So we source or we solve the affordability um, of uh, uh, the, the, the challenges around last mile deliveries. But also, of course, we contribute to cleaner cities more livable cities uh, because there are no carbon emissions uh, when you think about electric bicycles. That was Juma Majange's report. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent, 24-7 visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer David Vandy and our engineer Indugu Saida Hamdoun, thanks for choosing The Voice of America.